When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I'm very honored by his comments. It was fake news. It was a totally phony story. Thank you very much. It was made up. It was made up by NBC. He's in good graces until he's not again. There is obvious tension between President Trump and Secretary of State Tillerson. And I can't think of a Secretary of State in memory who's had to do something like that. Everything is a fight, and every fight is public. So when the fight is public, you've got to come out and you've got to make your amends in public. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who's Secretary of State, reticent for nine months to meet the press to talk about issues of geopolitics, trooped out grandly from his office at Foggy Bottom this week to not directly deny that he regarded his boss as a moron. I'm Josh King, author of Offscript, hosting today's show as we could all use a break from such dramas, free of attacks on the disaster-stricken mayor of San Juan, the knee-taking players of the National Football League, and the aforementioned Tillerson, who, in Trump's words, is wasting his time trying to negotiate with Little Rocket Man. No, it isn't a show for that. It's a show, if we can this week, for beckoning the hope that can come from bipartisan comradeship, as Steve Scalise and some of his friends from across the aisle expressed when the House Majority Whip recently returned to work. But that's why I'm so excited to be back, because... As we're fighting through the issues of the day, let's just keep in mind that we rise above the challenges of the day and understand that it's not just us and our constituents and the the country, the United States, that's counting on us being successful. People all around the world that believe in freedom are counting on us as well, and we will deliver for them. That's why I am so honored to be back here in the House serving with you. God bless each and every one of you, and God bless the United States of America. We need more sentiments like that, which is why I've invited Sig Rogish on the show this week. In 1988, Sig was my enemy of sorts. In 1984, he helped lead the Tuesday team of ad men who helped Ronald Reagan drive toward re-election. And four years later, while I was working for Mike Dukakis, Sig put a shine on George H.W. Bush and helped label his opponent as soft on crime. And oh yeah, he created the tank ad the fascinating story that formed the basis of my book, Off Script, An Advanced Man's Guide to White House Stagecraft, Campaign Spectacle, and Political Suicide. In the course of writing that book, Sig became my friend, and I got to know more about him. He is, in my eyes, Mr. Vegas, moving there in 1954 when his father worked in a titanium metals factory. He founded R&R Advertising Agency in 1973, building it into the largest agency in Nevada. For decades, closely associated with the never-ending reinvention of the image of that city. When Stephen Paddock used bump stock modified assault weapons to turn the Route 91 Harvest Country Music Festival during Jason Aldean's set into a killing field from his blown-out window on the Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino, I thought about how many times I stayed there, how many times I've seen Presidents Clinton Bush, Obama, and now Trump 
have to deal in their own way with the horror of gun violence in this country. And I thought of my friend in Las Vegas, Sig Rogish, and what it means to see a city whose growth you've helped to nurture for 50 years get turned upside down. We'll talk to Sig after the break. As I said before the break, I've known Sig Rogich since 2012, when I first started working on Dukakis and the tank. But I've known him all my political life, going back to 1988, when we were on opposite sides. Me working for the Democratic nominee and Sig making ads along with Roger Ailes for Bush and Quayle. Talking with Sig many times over the years, he's a Republican in the Reagan, Laxalt, George H.W. Bush, Jim Baker mold. Appointed ambassador to Iceland by Bush 41, he's also, to me, all things Las Vegas, his lifelong home kept in his heart and very creative soul. Sig, welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you. Nice to, uh, nice to be with you this morning. It's, uh, it's a tough week, obviously, Sig. Bring me back to Monday. I mean, you go to sleep on Sunday night. You've helped build Las Vegas into what it is, and I want to talk about that process. But when did you first hear about the shooting outside Mandalay Bay and, and what happened on Monday morning for you and for the city that you call home? You know, it's interesting. I went to dinner at my daughter's house that night. Uh, we had a family, little family get-together, and some relatives came here from Iceland. And so it was a wonderful evening, and I drove home with my son. And um, we probably drove right by it on the uh, other side of the freeway and, didn't ha- and had no idea something like this was going on. Came home. I don't watch TV at night much. I read a lot. And then uh, I did that and uh, went to bed. And my wife got up in the night and couldn't sleep. And uh, she was uh, just turning on the TV or checking her computer and ran in and woke me up. So that was the first introduction to this tragic thing. What did you, What was the first thing a person in Sig Rogich's position does? I mean, you're, you're a town father. You helped create the image of Las Vegas. Uh, Sheriff... Uh, Lombardo is is holding his news conferences. There must be quick mobilization of the people who, for whom the city's image is is first and foremost. You know, it's funny. I I, uh, I didn't have a solution to anything. I was kind of dumb, awestruck there watching it, Josh. Uh, I know Joe Lombardo is a really close friend of mine. I'm his finance chairman, actually. And so I was particularly proud of the job that he uh, did that evening and continued to do throughout the the days following. Uh, all of us, you know, are affected here. We have we didn't have direct c- communication uh, per se with people who uh, who had this tragedy, uh, you know, really uh, hurt their homes or their 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 family members. But indirectly, we have several people that were uh, that we know that were shot. Wounded. My wife went to a workout class. She goes to a CrossFit class, and the man who runs it has a niece who was shot in the lower back and is paralyzed probably forever. It's just an amazing thing to to see. I went to a mass the other night, Thursday night, and I told people it was such a bittersweet moment. Uh, It was tragic to see all the people there that were affected. It, It was tender and warm and heartwarming to really uh, watch and see what people did. People brought blankets uh, uh, and food and, and other things for those who were standing in line waiting to give blood. My wife went to give blood, and I'm going to do the same thing, but you have to wait in line for five, six, seven, eight hours to give blood. So the community really came together. Uh, it's not new for this town. I think uh, per capita, 
I'll bet Las Vegas contributes more to, to in the world of charity and goodwill uh, than any city of its kind in the world. It's been doing it ever since I've been here. Tell me about actually when you first arrived. I mean, you came from Iceland. Your dad worked in a fabricating plant and then really was uh, was in the business of making some of the neon that we associate with the Strip. Well, I came in 1954. The valley was probably between 35 and 50,000 in population, and now we're approaching 2.5 million. I lived in a little uh, public housing home. It's the only housing I had here in the valley, really. So myself, my uh, my brother, my sister, my mom and dad, we lived in a 400-square-foot home in Henderson. And uh, it was just a different place. My dad worked then for titanium metals, and uh, he later went to work uh, for a neon sign company. And he, as time went on, he started his own company, and he as fate would have it, built that sign, <laughs> that Welcome Las Vegas sign that is so iconic that uh, everyone wants to have a picture with it in the outskirts of town. Inspired you to get into the advertising business? I don't know if that did it or not. You know, I think what inspired me, I went to school at the University of Nevada in Reno, and I graduated uh, with a degree in journalism and marketing. Couldn't make any money in journalism. And then uh, <clears throat> I started writing, you know, uh, speeches for people like Paul Laxalt and others. And then I started working for an advertising agency doing copywriting. And as time went on, I decided I, I would start my own company. I was doing most of the work anyway on those campaigns, but not making any money. And it just evolved. And I ended up running, you know, hundreds and hundreds of campaigns. And one year I had 17 elections we, we represented here in the state, including the governor, the U.S. Senate, Supreme Court, sheriff, district attorney, all the big races in the state. And we won them all. And so that kind of set the tone and tenor for people looking for me to become more involved in political campaigns across the country. And in your spare time, becoming the largest advertising agency in Nevada, working on campaigns that help build that town, what stays in Vegas, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It's been a um, long history. I sold that company, R&R Advertising, and uh, I, I can tell you they've done a great job of marketing the city as they uh, move along. And you mentioned that theming, what happens here stays here. We used to use that, ironically, when I was in the White House. We'd say, what happens on the road stays on the road. <laughs> and we used so. it in our White House, too, believe me. So, as you you know, we're still in, in days since Stephen Paddock conducted his massacre from the windows of the Mandalay Bay. Too early to think about what comes next. But, uh, but what, what would come next in a city like Las Vegas to change the way it operates, respond, message, and move on from this? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I think that you're going to see some uh, changes. It's not going to surprise me if you see uh, uh, the utilization of substations on the Strip. I've talked to the sheriff about it at length. We've gone through some design concepts of how those would could be utilized. And um, so I think that'll be forthcoming. I think you're probably going to see uh, luggage more uh, looked at to a greater degree and security measures to make sure that people don't bring things in that shouldn't be coming in. I know Steve Wynn's already started it with the Wynn Hotel and the Encore. Listen, and as a practical matter, you can't stop something like this, per se. I don't think I don't think you can legislate and put every kind of law in the world on the books and expect that we're going to have a, a fail-proof, safe-proof system. But you can do everything you can to make sure that the obvious is, is, uh, is taken care of. Sig, I, I get the argument of, about the right to bear arms and the Second Amendment. But in a setting like we saw in Las Vegas this week, 
where's the balance? Where are the steps that legislation could take to protect victims from what happened on the 32nd floor of Mandalay Bay? There was this guy had a cache of weapons and modifications that allowed him to attack the concert goers of the Route 91 Harvest Festival as if he was in a war zone. You know, Josh, I don't know how to how to really give you a definitive answer on that, to be quite honest. I mean, it's tricky. You know, he had, uh, if he had automatic weapons, those are against the law. I do think that people can try to look at methodologies that would disallow some types of weaponry uh, that, that can be modified. Maybe that's part of the process. You know, manufacturers have to change the process so a gun can't be modified. But people who know arms can modify an, an, you know, a gun. It's not that difficult to do. I do think they could ban some of those uh, add-ons, some of those uh, supplemental components that allow a gun to become automated. But I don't know where you get with this. I mean, I remember the same talk we had when the other tragedies have occurred. And um, you find, for the most part, that people are breaking the law when they do what they do. And uh, I read the uh, Wall Street Journal talked about Australia, you know, and uh, how their gun culture changed and, and went through some of this. And I don't know what the answer is. I wish I had an answer. We know that uh, we're not going to see a change in the Second Amendment. We know that. None of us want to see that. But um, I think maybe it's going to have to be a little better background check. I think that that's absolute and true. And I think we should not be giving guns to people who don't pass that check, uh, that background check. And I think those should be pretty detailed so we don't have people who have a history of mental illness, for example, that are allowed to own guns. Maybe it's going to get to something like that. Sig, President Trump had one of those weeks that all presidents dread having, going first to Puerto Rico to visit victims of Hurricane Maria and then over to Las Vegas. And, you know, you were, you saw, you know, firsthand President Reagan after Challenger, President Bush after Andrew, President Clinton, Oklahoma City, Bush 43 or after 9-11, and President Obama certainly after Sandy Hook and Charleston. How did President Trump's visit to Las Vegas stack w with those earlier examples of presidential empathy? Well, I think he did a good job. You know, he can't really catch a break. Part of it is his own doing because he, I think he thinks out loud sometimes, if that makes sense to you. So he steps on his own story as a result of that. You know, he could find a cure for cancer on Monday and he'd say something Wednesday to step on a story that should be in play for two weeks, at least, if not 20 years. But that's just the way that he, that he thinks. But I think he did a good job here. Uh, you know, I think Americans look for, I said, I gave a quote to the Washington Post that Americans look for a president who has a shoulder they can put their head on so they can be comforted in times of distress. I, uh, I went on the uh, visit. I was with the president when the earthquake occurred in, in Northern California in uh, the late 90s. And um, I watched the the, uh, the tenderness that the president conveyed, and, uh, and when he visited that site and walked through it, and death was was around us everywhere. People were trapped and dying with the concrete, and uh, I never quite forgot that. And uh, and how uh, it's what a sense of decorum the president provided. You know, uh, that's George H. W. Bush at a time when the nation was was uh, on its on its edge of its seat watching what was happening up there. 
But, uh, you know, to have these uh, whammies come at him one after the other, you know, to have the situation in Texas and then Puerto Rico and to a lesser degree in Louisiana, the aftermath of it, and then going forward to the Virgin Islands and then this, you know, it's a, it's a tough time to be president, but that's what the job calls for. And uh, I think that he's got the medal to do it. I just wish he would not think out loud so much. You know, you and I have both worked with presidents in their toughest times and have seen them rise to these occasions. And you mentioned one with uh, President Bush in Northern California, and I've been with President Clinton right after Oklahoma City. And and uh, we have watched, I think, as President Obama has really provided that shoulder to cry on. And so I guess I wonder, in addition to, you know, thinking out loud, you know, do we, if if we were to give quotes to the Washington Post or the Las Vegas Sun about President Trump's visit, are we, are we grading him on a curve? I mean, the statement that he made was sort of read from paper. You don't see him, you know, really providing a shoulder to cry on. He's more like a person who says, you know, let's take some pictures and have a fabulous visit, but not turn the attention back on the victim and provide the consoler-in-chief role that we've seen presidents do in the past. Well, Josh, he did. He did visit with victims. Uh, he did. He did the things that I think that uh, you're supposed to do. I didn't find fault with his visit here. It's just not his in his DNA to to do certain things. That doesn't make him a bad guy. It just makes, means that he's got a different type of personality to address issues in a in a way that others might do differently. You know, I think Bill Clinton and and uh, in Bush forty one were guys that kind of welled up, you know, I, I watched the president and I watched both of those men, you know, get emotional. And uh, maybe that's why they're such good friends now after one beat the other, you know, for a presidency, why they communicate well together, because uh, they've got big hearts and it shows. I think Donald Trump's got a big heart. It just doesn't show at times, it's just, it's just the way he is. But I think he did everything he was supposed to do here. I was proud of my president being here. I mean, I wasn't a you know, active with, with his campaign in any way, but I, I was proud of the fact that he was here on the ground, made the visits, uh, talked with the mayor, the governor, the, you know, attorney general, all of the elected officials who were, who were involved in this, and they were on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans. And so I was, uh, I was pleased from that standpoint. It won't surprise uh, my listeners to know, as I wrote the book about presidential stagecraft that, you know, one of the first things I did when I started writing was watching the 60-second version of Morning in America, which you produced, the iconic Reagan ad from 1984. This afternoon, 6,500 young men and women will be married. And with inflation at less than half of what it was just four years ago, they can look forward with confidence to the future. It's morning again in America. And... Under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? If you compare the way that message unfolded, it's morning again in America, to 2016, make America great again, how do you account for the sort of creative distance between where you guys were in 84 and 88 to the way 2016 was run and won based on that slogan? 
That's such a good question, and I've asked myself a lot about what's happening in the world of politics today. It's a different world because of this thing called the Internet. Uh, it was new, relatively new, and when we were involved in campaigns, and instant communication uh, now gets in the way of good messaging. No one has a moment where they pause to reflect. In the old days, you know, we've had battles in the Senate since the late 1800s and the early 1900s. The difference was it took a week to tell one guy he was a jerk. It had to ride across the prairie to do it. Now it takes 20 seconds, and then there's no reflection on what's been said. There's an immediate response, and all of a sudden the messaging is one person doesn't like the other, and they're at it. Nothing about what the whole issue was to begin with. Uh, that's part of the big difference in the way we ran things then, and and, uh, and it's so so detailed now and so precise. We used to buy network television nationwide or regional TV it, it, in the worst case, but now you can buy in one state you can buy you know fifty radio stations and have a different message for a different region in that state on each uh, on each commercial. You can finite your messaging to such a degree that. The broad-themed components don't really see the light of day uh, as much as they did, you know, in previous campaigns. If you think about the amount of material content, archivable stuff that the Trump administration has already generated in 10 months in office, and you were to put that in the hands of a Democratic Tuesday team looking toward 2020 or even a primary opponent, does that sort of whet your appetite for the kind of creative opportunity that comes with Michael Dukakis in a tank and other things that an opponent would do that you would exploit, going back to your famous moment from that event in September 13, 1988? Well, yes, the answer is there's a slew of things that I, I look at on TV and think out of context, you know, lifted and crafted well will be good commercials. And uh, I cringe sometimes when I see people do certain things because I know that there are people in the creative world who are sitting around and saying, make sure that you uh, catalog what's, what, I, what we just saw on TV, whether it be Democrat or Republican, because we're going to use it in the next campaign. <laughs> that's, the, that's the beauty of having the Internet right in front of you. You can retrieve things immediately, too. We used to have to go hunt, you know, and go down to New York and go into the archives and ABC had a, you may recall, had a, a backlog of, of video components you could buy. Uh, you know, that's one of the places we tried to buy the, the uh, footage for the tank, but they wouldn't give it to us. They knew that we were going to do something with it. So we luckily found some guy that gave us 11 seconds of footage. That's all we had, and we looped it to make a commercial. That's not the case now. There's so much available that... Uh, people are going to have an easy time creating commercials from the things they see every day on television. One of the things that you might create a commercial about, Sig, happened this week, too, quite apart from President Trump's visit to Puerto Rico or Las Vegas. And that's this statement that the Secretary of State Rex Tillerson made at Foggy Bottom this week, refuting an NBC News story that he had threatened to resign over the summer and called the president a moron. This is a guy who doesn't generally spend a lot of time cultivating or talking to the press, and yet this was reason enough to create a, a moment of grandeur in front of the cameras at Foggy Bottom. You are and were very close to Secretary of State James Baker. You were appointed ambassador to Iceland. 
putting yourself in the Secretary of State's shoes based on some of this thinking out loud that President Trump has done? What kind of empathy do you have for the nation's top dipl- diplomat and the, um, and, and the ambassadorial corps? Well, I, I, uh, <laughs> the answer is I have a lot, but uh, it's old news. This is all old news stuff. There's too much going on for this to have any legs. It'll be a story that no one really reflects on after, I think he put it to bed yesterday, the way he handled it. And I thought he handled it uh, delicately and uh, and statesmanly. And uh, so I don't think that uh, it's a story that has legs. And uh, I think you're going to find a lot of that. People are in such overload on information these days that stories don't really, you know, keep their momentum. So every day is something new. I'm particularly pleased with uh, with the Secretary of State. Uh, I think Jim Baker would probably tell you he is too. But I think those two guys understood it. Uh, you know the diplomatic perception. I think the one thing we had with James Baker as Secretary of State is he also really understood the political equation, combined with his skill, his articulation, and his eloquence in in representing this country, and understanding the political nuances that go with it. So when you can combine that, you know, uh, for the Secretary of State, that's why he was so exceptional at the job that he did. Sig Rogish, thanks so much for reconnecting and joining me this week, this tough week from Las Vegas. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate it. Nice to be with you, of course, and good luck. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Did you like it? Let us know on Twitter. We're on there at RealTrumpCast, and I'm at Polyoptics. But hey, if you really want to help us out, subscribe a friend or family member to TrumpCast. It's the best way to get the word out about the show. TrumpCast is produced by Jason DeLeon. I'm Josh King. Thanks for listening to TrumpCast.